what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. I am prone to fits of righteous indignation. I have even stated that righteous indignation is my favorite emotion. I experience righteous indignation as a fervor that builds slowly but intensely as I talk about things that piss me off. It's like my soapbox isn't just a soapbox, but a long spiral staircase leading to the pinnacle of my irreproachable outrage and moral superiority. Once I start climbing that staircase, it's extremely difficult to stop and work my way back down to ground level. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Today's episode takes a critical look at the rise of anti-capitalist, anti-exploitation, and anti-manipulation content on social media. Now, that might seem like a strange topic for me to cover, given that I am opposed to capitalism, exploitation, and manipulation. But the popularity of this media demonstrates a set of phenomena that serve to illustrate one of the most frustrating aspects of capitalism. And that is the way that capitalism always appropriates that which seeks to resist it. And so media, marketing, and messaging that's righteously indignant about the harm of capitalism has the unintended consequence of propping up the system. Of course, it's not quite so black and white as that. So I'm gonna explore this critique from a few different angles. And what I am explicitly not doing here is calling anyone out who creates this kind of content or trying to shame anyone into changing their behavior. Pot, kettle, and all that. What I do aim to achieve, along with my guest, Brooke Monahan, is a nuanced look at how these systems operate and the unintended consequences that can result from the ways we engage with them. Righteous indignation has often served me well. I remember taking a walk with my now husband, Sean, very early in our relationship, so like more than 10 years ago now. He was telling me about some compensation policies at his job, and let's just say I was not impressed. I've always had a distaste for casual labor exploitation. Up the staircase of rage I climbed, higher and higher, I might not have been impressed with his situation, but he was impressed with my passion for it. Over the last few years, I've tried to temper my righteous indignation, to prevent myself from stepping on that first stair and instead pause to investigate the nuance at the heart of most things that set me off. 
This has been very good for my mental health and general demeanor. It has not been so good for my online presence. You see, righteous indignation gets clicks. It racks up the likes. It inspires comments and shares and follows. And all those clicks, likes, comments, and other engagement metrics mean that content fueled by righteous indignation is more likely to spread. Righteous indignation can turn an unknown activist or armchair pundit into a social media star overnight. It's one of the most potent catalysts of the spread of misinformation online, too. Here's Max Fisher, author of The Chaos Machine, in an interview with NPR. Extended time on social media is addictive, and it changes your behavior, and it changes the way that your mind works, and it does that in a consistent direction towards more outrage, more extreme ideas, and a greater hatred of us versus them. Soon, outrage is a strategy more than it is an emotion. When you know a particular style works online, you're likely to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And as Fisher says, that actually changes our behavior. We go looking for things to get riled up about. We start to see ourselves as truth tellers, whistleblowers, even saviors. And what we don't see while all that is happening is the impact our outrage has on others. Because what I was noticing was that those of us who were in that corner of the internet were using our platforms to really get angry and then like yell about a thing. (laughs) And we were hyping each other up, but not really acknowledging or noticing the effect that it was having on all of us who are in that space, never mind the effect that it was having on people who maybe weren't even engaging in the conversation, but were just wanting to grow their businesses and were following us because they wanted our advice or whatever, our perspective. That's Brooke Monahan, a business coach and consultant specializing in values-driven ventures. Brooke emailed me a couple months back and she asked if I wanted to talk about what I'll call the outrage industrial complex she saw building in the ethical business space. And boy, howdy, did I ever. I'd love to. I had noticed many of the same dynamics in public spaces that Brooke had named. And I've also seen the effects of these dynamics in my work with podcasters and business owners. At least in my corner of social media, there are a lot of folks asking how to run an ethical business. Or perhaps more specifically, there are a lot of folks answering this question. Ethics and marketing, two things that I'm seeing drift further and further apart right now, and I want to address that today. I want to talk about the difference between unethical and ethical marketing and how to ensure you stay on the right side both for yourself and for your clients. And maybe even more people afraid to find out that their marketing practices or business model doesn't check all the ethical business boxes. I've wrestled with the question of how to run an ethical business here on the podcast many times before, and I know how easy it is to fall back on the outrage industrial complex and binary thinking to get those likes and shares. Whether it's evident or not, part of my writing process is checking my work for activating emotions and swapping them out for something more measured and curious. 
I don't want to be a part of the outrage industrial complex, and I don't want to fall back in line with status quo capitalism. And at the same time, even discussing these phenomena brings the risk of replicating them, just as Brooke and I had witnessed with righteous indignation online. Like, okay, we're all saying, push the status quo and break the rules and do business your way. But we're replicating a lot of the same stuff that we say that we're against. And it is so mainstream to say push the status quo. It is the most mainstream you can thing you can say at this point. And not only is there the risk of replicating the same outrage, binary thinking, and fear we see online, there is a real risk of replicating the prevailing economic and political structures that we claim to be struggling against. In his book, Capitalist Realism, Mark Fisher, no relation to Max Fisher that I know of, writes, Alternative and independent don't designate something outside mainstream culture. Rather, they are styles, in fact, the dominant styles within the mainstream. As Brooke points out, raging against the machine isn't counterculture. It is culture. It's not anti-capitalism. It is capitalism. That doesn't mean we shouldn't express our anger at the systems we operate in. It means that our anger will be appropriated by capitalism. In this case, capitalism merges with algorithm design to create this pervasive dynamic inside the attention economy. Outrage spreads. In his book, A Spectre Haunting, China Mielville writes that Capitalism doesn't win by taking one side or another in the culture wars. Capital will always play both sides by dictating the terms of the debate. In this case, our anger should be directed at the conditions that require people and companies to play dirty in order to survive. But instead, our anger gets redirected to those people and companies so that we can say, I'm not that kind of business owner. Mielville puts it this way, hashtag deploying notionally right on capitalism is capitalism and no friend of liberation. Call it hashtag deploying capitalism, woke capitalism, conscious capitalism. To varying degrees of success, companies leverage progressive messaging to gain clout and the goodwill of their customers. But most do so without the liberatory politics central to the movements they gesture toward. Liberatory politics tends to put a damper on profit margins, to say the least. But progressive messaging? Well, that seems to be a good profit strategy. Of course, not every influencer or brand that posts ethical maxims would call themselves anti-capitalist. But that's kind of my point. Claiming to resist extractive, manipulative, or accumulative business practices without recognizing how more fundamental systems produce and incentivize those practices doesn't really do much to change the injustice in the system. It's a good first step, but there are many more steps to go. Capitalism always appropriates the ideas and movements that try to resist its logic. Capitalist ventures will always find a way to turn a radical notion into a watered-down corporate initiative that boosts shareholder value. Think the clean beauty merchandising at Sephora, or American Express's Small Business Saturday, 
or the countless corporate climate change initiatives that I mentioned in my last dispatch. And while claiming that businesses will always seize on radical ideas for profit sounds incredibly cynical, I say it as neutrally as possible. While it's easy for me to imagine a boardroom full of the ultra-wealthy masterminding how a company will make bank on their superficial climate change initiative, I don't actually believe that's the case. Most of the time, anyway. Again, that would just scapegoat these companies instead of directing our critique at the larger system. Instead, I actually imagine brand managers and CMOs and ad agency folks huddled together in a dimly lit room with bad sandwiches trying to figure out how to balance profit needs with a deep desire for substantive change. After all, their jobs depend on it. One must walk a line, writes Mielville, between celebrating and building resistance to capitalist dynamics and understanding that certain iterations of that very resistance might be appropriated by the system of barbarity itself. I'm a business school student, so I learned a lot of things in business school that I felt like I had to unlearn in order to get to a point where I could run my business in a way that felt good for me. Brooke Monahan again. And I, I was pleasantly surprised to find that there were lots of other people in the business development space who were also talking about the same things. And then I would say probably in 2021, I noticed something in myself where I was with my clients telling them, don't be afraid to do things your own way. And I was definitely afraid to do things my own way. And I was noticing that most of that influence was coming from other people who were also saying, especially things like, you know, we need to be doing business in a way that isn't sleazy. We need to be doing business in a way that is, um, you know, trauma-informed and ethical. And I was noticing that Really what was happening for me was I was attracted to those conversations at first because I thought, oh, we're on the same page. But then I started to feel like really what was keeping me there was this, I'm safe here because we are all on the same page about what is good and right. Notice that Brooke uses the word safe here. What did she want to be safe from? I am terrified of being a bad person. I'm terrified of the possible truth that actually, deep down, I am not a good person, and thus I deserve all of the bad things that have happened to me, things being my fault without me even realizing it. And I was so attracted to a space that was talking, that was kind of speaking to that fear of, it's so easy to get sucked into the business machine and grow your business and not even realize that the things that you're doing are actually sleazy and bad because you were taught them by people at the top who are themselves sleazy and bad. And I kind of felt like it was keeping me in line in a way. Brooke needed to feel safe from being labeled sleazy or unethical. Doing things the right way would keep her safe from being called out or canceled. And so the first thing I want to name here is that both Brooke and I are college-educated cis-het white women. The desire to be safe in this particular way is part of our social programming. 
white women like us have learned to make the most of our social standing by leveraging our powerlessness and conforming to the image of goodness, as Phyllis Palmer argued in her 1984 essay, White Women, Black Women. We learn that we shouldn't make a fuss or ask too many questions. And that means, as Palmer contests, that as white women, we're far less likely to ally with our black and brown sisters. We look to them as examples of strong, unfailing women, but historically, we've not fought for change with them because their example confronts our careful compromise with white men. White women's safety is experienced in our proximity to the power of white men. Our safety is experienced in our proximity to capitalism itself, even when we can recognize how its machinations harm us. When Brooks says, And I kind of felt like it was keeping me in line in a way. The line she's referring to is this one between the white female image of goodness and, well, everything else. I mean, to be clear, this is not something we're conscious of, most of the time anyway. And the modes of staying in line will vary depending on other intersecting identities class, disability, sexuality, and education most prominently. But that deep desire to not step out of bounds that people like Brooke and I feel is itself a product of patriarchal supremacist capitalism. And media trying to communicate what's in bounds and what's out of bounds of ethical business is also a product of patriarchal supremacist capitalism. And You don't have to be a white woman to worry about cutting your ties to power or privilege. Whether intentional or not, trying to define ethical business practices inculcates us versus them social dynamics. There are ethical businesses and unethical businesses. There are sleazy marketing practices and non-sleazy marketing practices. There's exploitative pricing and non-exploitative pricing. Though, to be clear, sometimes it is bad, sometimes it is wrong, sometimes it's completely unethical. It's possible to believe there are some practices that are inherently harmful, though, without turning those who use them into boogeymen. When I was at the height of my, let me show you all the things that are bad and wrong and why they're all bad and wrong. It absolutely was in part fueled by me projecting my own insecurities about myself onto other people and me sort of say, like seeing other people do things and being like the audacity, right? Like, Oh my God, like, you think that you can just ba 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 Dividing people into us and them categories dehumanizes everyone. The them group is dehumanized by being reduced to the perception that they're inherently wrong or abnormal, both of which quickly morph into moral qualities. The us group is also dehumanized, insofar as the us group is denied the full experience of their capacities and emotions. The us-versus-them dichotomy is a classic tactic of totalitarian leaders and cult groups. 
Instead of inviting diverse opinions or even curiosity, a leader will till a psychological schism between their followers and everyone else, as Amanda Montell put it in her book, Cultish. The goal, she writes, is to make your people feel like they have all the answers while the rest of the world is not just foolish, but inferior. People in the superior group, the us group, often end up with a host of stories that justify their experiences, whether they're rational or not. And a lot of it was coming from the fact that I had all sorts of stories and all sorts of narratives for myself about why I couldn't just go ahead and do that. I needed to make things so much more complicated for myself. I needed to go through so many, like, you know, I needed to suffer so much more before that was going to be okay. It couldn't possibly be something that I could just do. So rather than confronting that in myself, it's a lot easier to look at other people who are doing it and make up a story about how they're just bad and wrong. Perpetuating these divisions without meaningful contact across our artificial social boundaries just allows status quo capitalism to continue to thrive. Trying to stay in line and help others stay in line, too, just furthers capital's agenda to keep us pitted against each other. We are the good, morally virtuous people just trying to do business or career in an ethical way. Can't you see how hard we're working to be good? Whereas they are constantly conniving and scheming to take what we have for themselves. In that paradigm, anyone who doesn't fit your idea of what good and morally virtuous looks like is going to look like a marauder. There can't be just one ethical way of doing business. And I think that that's what we've found ourselves in right now is that there's lots of people who are kind of trying to define what the boundaries are and the rules are around what is ethical business and what isn't. And to be honest with you, I I really, I really don't know. And, and also, I think that <laughs> maybe this is coming from somebody who is like married to an ethicist, but... <laughs> That really requires us to have some definition of what is and isn't ethical. And there's a lot of varied perspectives on what is and isn't ethical. And lots of people who have done lots of work on that. Now, one thing I can tell you about ethicists is that they love a thought experiment. So to illustrate what Brooke is saying here, that there can't be just one way to have an ethical business, let's try one out. Imagine you're building a page on your website to sell an event you're offering. You consider whether or not it's ethical to put a countdown timer on your page to let people know when ticket sales will close. On one hand, some people say that a countdown timer exacerbates urgency. As long as the date sales close is clearly stated on the page, that should be sufficient to inform without manipulating. On the other hand, other people say that countdown timers can make a sales page more accessible. Those who struggle with executive functioning appreciate the extra nudge that a countdown timer can give. Now, if you don't include a countdown timer, you won't take anyone's money who would have felt pressured by the timer. But there will also be people who forget to sign up by the end of ticket sales who could have benefited from the event. If you do include a countdown timer, you will maximize the number of people who benefit from your event. But you might also sell tickets to people who felt pressured to buy 
because of the timer. So which choice is more ethical? According to utilitarian ethics, you might decide to use a countdown timer because your ethical compass is attuned to what choice creates the most good in the world. Since including the timer maximizes the number of people benefiting from the event, that's the ethical choice. But according to deontological ethics, you might decide that using the countdown timer is unethical because it could diminish the freedom and subjectivity of people considering whether or not to buy a ticket. The countdown timer may encourage you to see potential buyers as a means to selling out your event rather than ends in and of themselves. So yeah, not only is there no one definition of what is and isn't ethical, there are many schools of thought about how to even consider ethical questions. And that leaves me with an even bigger question. Is having an ethical business under capitalism even possible? In the better late than never interrogation of systemic oppression and the economic structures that perpetuate it, people want to know whether the way they're doing things is ethical. Is it inclusive enough, accessible enough, anti-racist enough, compassionate enough? Unfortunately, this type of question allows the systems themselves to dictate the terms of the debate. By individualizing problems, we obscure the foundational components that catalyze those problems. That is, when we ask, what makes a business ethical? We're often asking, is my business ethical? Am I doing things properly? Have I checked all the boxes? Am I good? In asking these questions, we take for granted the conceits of the system. In asking these questions, we can unknowingly reinforce the systems we hope to resist. When we ask, what is ethical marketing? We're not asking what conditions turn marketing into a required activity. When we ask what is ethical pricing? We are not asking what social relations exist in any monetary transaction. When we ask what is ethical employment? We are not asking how it is that one person can profit from the labor of multiple other people. This is not to say that asking what makes a business ethical is a bad question to ask. Of course not. Incremental countermeasures are better than no countermeasures at all. But to truly achieve something that comes close to an ethical business, we need to start with the systems in which we all operate. Maybe you've heard it said before, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. With all the companies touting their ethical manufacturing processes and climate-friendly material sources, that notion can feel extreme. What do you mean there's no ethical consumption under capitalism? Bombas and Everlane and Whole Foods and Athleta and Allbirds all tell me I'm doing good by buying their products. And to be clear, those are all brands that I use on an almost daily basis. But the fact of consuming their products props up a system that is inherently unjust and damaging to the planet and its inhabitants. Consumer capitalism always sets negative externalities in motion, no matter how companies within that ecosystem use their profits or treat their workers. Every time we buy something, we engage and reinforce the system. So no. There is no ethical consumption under capitalism. 
and I think that must also mean that there is no ethical business under capitalism. There are varying degrees to which we push back on the logics of capitalism. There is a spectrum of harm that's done in the process of exchange. There are more and less just ways to operate and manage a business. But can a business really be ethical in a system that's central conceit is the exploitation of the many to the extreme benefit of the few? No. On that note, I'll leave you with two ways to move forward from here. First, solidarity. There are fewer enemies out there than it seems. And I think that it's important to note how much better things can get when we have different people with maybe different values, different perspectives, running their businesses in different ways. And that that allows us to choose to work with people who share the same values as us. And so it might not necessarily be that um, there's one ethical way to do things, but it might be that like, okay, you're doing things in a way that's, that other people disagree with. And if we leave space for other people to do things in a way that you disagree with, then we can choose our people and we can exist in a more diverse community or a more diverse way of doing business where different people's needs are met. When we erase the artificial boundaries around what's okay and what's not, according to armchair ethicists, we'll notice just how many people are interested in doing things differently. We can cultivate solidarity from that position and together advocate for big structural change, to quote my girl Elizabeth Warren. We can radically change the conditions on the ground to defang capitalism, if not dethrone it. Individually, we can worry less about our safety, and collectively, we can work toward the true safety of everyone. And second, creativity. It is so much harder to develop an idea that's actually going to change things than it is to just yell about the things that you're angry about. But at some point, it's like that's where the rigor comes in. That's where you actually challenge the status quo. That's where people start disagreeing with you. That's where people can say, actually, you know what? I think you missed something here and I disagree. This doesn't work for me. This actually calls back on this work, which is actually problematic for all of these reasons, right? It's going to open the door for that. Um, And we have to be willing to walk through it if we're going to make right on our promise to people, if we're going to actually create something of value, but also if we're going to move past this idea that simply getting interactions on social media is going to do something for us. If there is no ethical business under capitalism, we each have an opportunity to make creative decisions about how we do business. Some things will work really well. Others will fail. Some decisions will cause unintended consequences, and others will lead to surprisingly positive outcomes. But we'll never know just what we can accomplish within the system as it is until we let go of our need to get it right. And we'll never be able to change the system as it is until we're confident in our ability to figure it out as we go. Big thanks to Brooke Monahan for the idea for this episode and the wonderfully messy conversation we had about these ideas. Find out more about Brooke at brooke-monahan.com. I release every podcast episode in essay form on Thursdays in my newsletter. 
And that newsletter is getting a new home on Substack. I've been low-key considering this move for the last year and a half, and it's definitely time. Moving to Substack will allow me to fund the work I do, create more short-form content between episodes and essays, and connect with more like-minded thinkers. All of my work that's currently available free of charge will still be free of charge. That's free Tuesday episodes, free Thursday newsletters, free short-form content. But if you value what I create and want to support this work, you can become a paid subscriber for as little as $7 per month and get access to new content like bonus podcast episodes and a this is not advice column. Get what works delivered to your inbox by going to read.explorewhatworks.com. That's read.explorewhatworks.com. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation.